Nerds. Welcome to episode 520-something of the Professional Book Nerds podcast presented by Overdrive. This is Adam all by myself today. We've hit a number where I I, I, I can't keep track anymore. I think it's 524, maybe. Does it really matter? I don't think you guys probably care what number it is. Um, that's okay. You can find all that at professionalbooknerds.com. Uh, today's episode is an interview I did with wonderful New Zealand author, Elizabeth Knox. Uh, we are a global podcast. Last week, I had a podcast interview with Genevieve Gornershek, who lives for all intents and purposes, basically around the corner from me here in the Cleveland area. And then this week, we have Elizabeth, who is, um, I looked it up, 8,600 miles from where I am currently sitting to where she was currently sitting, or rather sitting when we chatted. Uh, she has a new novel out called The Absolute Book, and it is perfect. Um, a good friend of the show, uh, our buddy on Instagram, Tina, who runs TBR, etc., which is an Instagram account you should be following if you're not, because it's lovely. Uh, she and I were talking about this book, and she's like, wow, that is such an Adam book. And she hit the nail on the head. Um, the Absolute Book is a wonderful story that is filled with sweeping uh, takes on fairies and multiple worlds and demons and Norse mythology. And there's so much in here. Um, it's very much, if you're a fan of Neil Gaiman's writing, you will love this book. Um, it's just, gosh, I love this book so much. I haven't been able to stop thinking about it. Uh, we get all into the plot and how she put together this story and how the absolute book came from um, trying to deal with a family tragedy that she was trying to come to terms with. We talk a lot about the plot in this particular episode. Um, I hesitate to say that there's any spoilers just because even if you know the exact plot of this book, you will still get just heaps of enjoyment from reading it. Um, I am already thinking about my next read of this book. Uh, it's just one of those stories where it stuck with me and there's so much that I want to dive back into um, for fans of Reading Glasses and us. This is a big book about a book type of a novel. So everyone loves that. Um, it's got a lot of library love in there. There's just so much goodness in this. And Elizabeth was lovely to chat with. Um, we talk a little bit about Peter Jackson because she has a connection and also she's from New Zealand. So of course we have to talk about Lord of the Rings um, and Flight of the Concords for at least a moment. Um, we, have to, we have to talk about how our respective countries have been dealing with the pandemic and just all, but it's interesting. It's a really good conversation. And as you can probably imagine, yes, of course, my dogs bark at some point throughout the chat. Um, that's just what happens now. Um, yeah, I'm, you know what? I don't think I'm going to keep you guys any longer with the introduction because I, I want you to get to this conversation. But if you're enjoying the podcast and you haven't yet left us a review somewhere, we would appreciate that, whether it's iTunes or wherever you listen to the podcast. Um, you can always find us on Twitter and Instagram at ProBookNerds. If you listen to our most recent episode, we talked about our Professional Book Nerds reading challenge. Jill and I shared some cookbooks that we like and some recipes. And if you're partaking in our Professional Book Nerds reading challenge, which you can find at ProfessionalBookNerds.com, uh, definitely be sure to tag us on Instagram and Twitter with all of your challenges that you tackle, but also, but especially we want to see some recipes you put together with any cookbooks you might be loving. Okay. That's everything. I'm going to let you get to this just splendid conversation with Elizabeth Knox, author of the absolute book on the professional book nerds podcast.
Yeah, I'll just say, you know, why, where it came from and how it ended up with the kind of tone and shape it has. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So tell you what, we can just um, do that right now because I've, I've got the recording and I can kind of edit out the, the beginning aspects. Um, so Elizabeth, can you just sort of introduce our readers or our listeners rather to the absolute book, uh, a book that they absolutely need to check out because it's wonderful. So what would be an introduction that you would say to this story? Uh, well, I started writing it because I had become out of a very difficult period in my life where my mother was dying of ALS and um, my uh, husband's brother was killed deliberately by somebody. Um, and we had a lot of people to look after for about a three-year period. And coming out of that, we were very kind of weightless and buoyant and relieved. And I got this feeling about being able to walk away from the trouble without feeling that you'd done done anything wrong, that you'd mm -hmm. done everything right. And I wanted to capture that, but I also wanted to talk about my feelings about my brother-in-law's death in as much as uh, the man who killed him was tried for manslaughter rather than murder because you couldn't prove intent. So I thought I would just give that story to my heroine. So her sister is killed by somebody who can only be tried for manslaughter and that kind of messes up her head mm -hmm. my, uh, my Taryn's head she can't let it go um, her confidence in the world is very shaken as it is, is if you have someone near to you who dies by violence mm -hmm. your, your confidence in the world is shaken and she seeks revenge and that messes up her life even more so I wanted to start with this person with this with with the with uh, who was kind of broken and I, who I wanted to recover, who mm -hmm. I wanted to be able to explore that feeling of coming out of something, being able to do the right things finally and coming out of, you know, a time of trouble. But I didn't have any framework. So then I started thinking about the kind of stories that I liked, mm -hmm. but wanted to sometimes wanted to improve upon. Like, so I love what I call arcane thrillers, things like, um, Kate Moss's Labyrinth or, or Dan Brown's The Da Vinci Code. Mm -hmm. I love that kind of book uh, because I like the scholarly hero of those books. So I thought, all right, my, my heroine Taryn's going to be a scholarly hero. Mm -hmm. And then I decided that I the thing that I sometimes disappointed me with those books is when they suggest it vast they suggest vast mystical things and there isn't anything vast and mystical so I thought right well this is going to start like an arcane thriller with a scholarly hero looking for something a troubled scholarly hero mm -hmm. and um but there there really will be you know gods and demons and so forth and she's going to sort of basically stumble through into other worlds mm -hmm. and the world's going to expand and expand but I wanted it so I wanted it to be an epic but I wanted it to also double back and deepen the life of its characters mm -hmm. uh, more like a mystery than an epic so it's what I call an, an intimate epic because it expands but it always keeps coming back into mm -hmm. and and people who've apparently been lost or disappeared in the story come back and you know you there's suddenly someone turns up again you know like no, 20 years later in a bookshop, here is the person who tried to burn down the library, you know. There yeah. is so much in this book that I want to unpack because 
I you're I want to come back to the you know the original kind of opening of the story like, like you mentioned sort of this this violent act that is hard to to prove intent for but there's the book opens up in this very sort of grounded tragic aspect and then unfolds into I mean, there's aspects of Dante in here and Norse gods and there's fairy in this. There's so much going on. And so when you first started writing this story, did it start as almost like a cathartic release of those emotions that you were feeling from the, the tragedy that your family went through and then sort of unfolded from there? Or did you always know, okay, I'm going to kind of mushroom cloud, I guess, this whole story out into the fantastical aspects of it. Uh, I did know that I always wanted to write a book like that. And that has to do with the tone. Like one of my favorite books is um, Mikhail Bulgakov's The Master and Margarita, the, mm -hmm. you know, the modernist Russian masterpiece. And one of the things I like most about that book is the fact that it doesn't mind being hilarious and farcical at the same time as being sort of beautiful and grand and sad like mm -hmm. it it does it does the mixed tone I always think of um Buffy the Vampire Slayer too mm -hmm. that Buffy didn't mind being grand didn't mind being sad didn't mind being gritty mm -hmm. and then silly and yeah so so I wanted something that that could do that too so that that was another thing about the epicness was not kind of sticking to one sort of tone but letting the atmosphere just the sense of expanding mysteries and and the and that, and that nothing is lost mm -hmm. you know both those two things together are kind of um they well they're thematic but they sort of run like atmosphere too through the whole thing it's just the mood of the book so yeah that's that was that was my intention with it yeah it's 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 strange to say that a, a book that features Odin and his ravens and a fairyland and hell and all these different demons and angels and aspects feels very grounded, but it does because of the emotions of your main character. You know, we keep coming back to her sister who died and um, the fact that even as she's going through these otherworldly emotions in these places that are idyllic and she's exploring this world where in theory she could live for hundreds of years in like the best possible ways she's still always kind of it doesn't really get resolved until the very end of the book her feelings about her sister so keeping I, I think keeping that through line does it it feels very grounded but um can you walk me through maybe how this story takes shape for you as a writer because did you <laughs> I feel I'm I'm afraid to almost ask if you wrote this linearly because I feel like that can't possibly be how it came to be. But how did you put this story together? I did write it at linear, I can't say that word, in a linearly. linear fashion. Yeah, I, I wrote it. I found my way into the story, having an idea of what kind of story I wanted to tell. And then after that, it's the you sort of have an inner choreographer that tells you where to put your feet, mm -hmm. um, so to speak, as you're writing. And you know, there, there are points where you're writing a book like that, where you have to pause and go, all right, well, you know, um, why is this bit not working? And then, you know, you, I always run for my checklist because I'm quite experienced, you know, so I yeah, run for my checklist, you know, is it, is it 
point of is it point of view? Does this bit need to be told by the other narrator, or is mm-hmm. it is it tone? Is it whatever? Um, but I think the fun for me in the story was kind of discovering what I could do, and I knew I was going to I knew where I was going to end up in terms of. Uh, I knew I was going to have purgatory towards the end of the book, mm-hmm. an expedition into purgatory. And that was kind of, you know, a big node of meaning. Um, you know, important things were going to happen. So I knew I was heading that way. And I also knew that um, because Taryn's revenge had involved someone else and she'd damaged this person's life, they weren't it wasn't just going to be about her feelings of guilt. This guy was literally going to turn up, you know, he was, mm. it was the bad penny and that had to happen. So that was the kind of thriller component. Mm. And I knew that running through the whole book, there's this, this what's called the green prayer, the green pressure that the whole time, you never know the the main, the main character apart from Taryn is a non point of view character that shift mm-hmm. um, who's not human in any way shape or form Um, and he has a thing he's being asked to do throughout the whole book but you only gradually become aware that there are forces asking him to do something so he's not a person who thinks well there's something I have to do and I'm looking for the means to do it he's looking without any idea that he can do the thing he's being asked to do and that Mm. kind of runs throughout that's a kind of a hidden thing but but it's hidden because the book also is about things being hidden. I mean, the the object that everyone's looking for is hides itself, and shift has a spell on him that means that people can't see him properly. And you know, so it's just it yeah. just runs its it runs its hidden theme <laughs> while it's revealing. So it's re- revealing things. Yeah. Well, and the reason I asked about it being a linear story is because it doesn't the story itself doesn't feel truly linear to me in a good way it reminds me of um like a role-playing video game where there's side quests and there's little things and it's it's almost like it's strange to say a book is an open world story but to me that's what it felt like because we would meet we would our the main characters go through a certain aspect of your story and then maybe we meet someone and then we spend a long time in that particular person who we just met's kind of like backstory or how they came to be. They, and- yeah, they tell a story, which is which is their memory keepers for shift. Yeah. So and- they've they've learned these stories that are his stories, like how I met this person, and they're kind of supposed to supposed to pass on information to someone else who might have to keep that story. So. Because yeah, he, he, he forgets everything, so so there's that. But yeah, I lo- I love your co- your comparing it to an open world adventure in a game because um my son's a very keen gamer, and I've spent a long time listening to him talk about the virtues of open world. That you know you can go well there is the quest waiting for me, but meanwhile I'm going to go and hunt some bears or you know do some fishing. <laughs> I'm thinking of Red Dead Redemption here. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No, it it um I'm actually I'm playing a Zelda game right now and it feels like the same way if you it's the same thing it's like you can just get lost in these other places but I love a book like that because it makes you feel like I think so often when people read stories and they read books they're just trying to get to what is the end point and this one it just feels like it, the the point of the obviously there is a driving force which you said we kind of learn very late in the 
book, like what is really the driving force behind what we think is the driving force. I'm being very vague because I want people to really like come into the book fresh, but it just feels like the the point of the story you're trying to show was come and explore this world, come and see these different layers of this universe I've built out. And I don't know, to me, it's just every time I met a new aspect like when you meet a bird and you and you discover like oh this is one of Odin's ravens and like you like there's these little characters that get dropped in where it feels like you're leaving like a like bre- breadcrumbs around a path just to say like come explore and, and stay for a while like was there an overarching thing that you wanted people to take away because there are absolutely sort of like political and she and like global aspects of this that people will come to feel but like what are there things you wanted people to take away from the book that maybe weren't directly connected to the plot uh yes i think the main thing was because because it runs towards the end like a wish fulfillment fantasy mm-hmm. um because i mean it's supposed to cause the, the i'm trying to please people i'm trying to make them happy um towards the end of the book because mm-hmm. course things work out for the characters and because it's all hard won and, and, you know, it's got a recovery narrative in there of Taryn coming back to life after all her troubles. But um, what I wanted to do was make people think about what they were wishing for. And to do that, you've kind of got to be a, a leave things to be a bit unstable and uneasy. So lots of people can go, oh, wow, that was wonderful how the world got saved. And mm. other people go like, yes, but nothing like that's going to happen to us. And then then you, but my idea is to think, well, what do you, what are you wishing for? You're wishing for somebody to, to take charge of certain things and say, no, these, these matters are urgent. We have to do something about them and we have mm. to change our lives. Um, and, you know, governments can do that pretty much. And, you know, I'm a New Zealander mm-hmm. and we're relatively COVID free. And mm-hmm. that was because our government just basically took things in hand and said, all right, we are going to act like the good parents and protect you. Yeah. yeah. So I was kind of interested in that idea of making people sort of feel a wish Mm-hmm. And then look around and go, yeah, all right. Well, if, if, if that's what we want and need, how do we get that? Mm-hmm. So that was sort of a serious intention, but it's much less serious than my aim to startle and please and, you know, mm-hmm. and um, divert and transport people. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually, I looked it up. I was, I was laughing because it just so happened the author who was on, last week um a week ago when this episode comes out lived happened to live in the city that i live in um about 20 minutes from my house and i looked it up you and i are 8600 miles apart so that's it is we are we're worlds <laughs> apart and, and getting to sort of the like the, the covid aspect of i mean i know that this book isn't written as like a covid response but the, no it was written before so. exactly <laughs> yeah, the, the a thing that struck me is thinking about the juxtaposition of how our you know, how the United States was handling the pandemic, which falling flat on its face, um, and how New Zealand handled it, um, there it kind of reminds me there's there's a part in the book. there's a, it's almost like a singular line that it really stuck with me. Um, and I wanted to bring it up because I haven't heard other authors address anything like this before. You talk about 
Odin, how he sees his followers. My dog's about oh, to yeah. bark at something. Oh, yes, Jacob guessing what has happened to. Yeah, there is a <laughs> there is a dog outside. There's a dog that has <laughs> no, nerves no, no. to be outside. <laughs> it's, it's it's narrative. Just you know. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I can edit. I can edit all of Remy's little low growling. Hey, go. <laughs> Um, there is, let me see if I can get him to be quiet real quick. How dare that dog? I know. I know. Um, so there, there is a, there's a, there's a part, it's really quick in the book where it's, Odin, it's Jacob, it's Jacob, to, no, Jacob and, um, Nev talking about, uh, she says, you know, Oh, gods get corrupted by their foot. Yeah, how gods and, get corrupted by their foot. This is why. What's happened to Odin? Yeah, because yeah. a lot of white supremacists are getting Norse tattoos. Yeah, yeah. So he says, so you mean the liners, oh, oh, you mean um, white supremacists with Volk nuts tattooed on their man boobs? Because Jacob's <laughs> very disparaging of anyone that he disapproves of. So he just sort of like, yeah. you know, he just lays on in there. But it's but, the thing that I thought was really interesting about it is because I, I haven't really seen an idea like this before where gods are affected by their followers and how like their followers believe. Because there's, there's American gods by Neil Gaiman, but that's more so like, a specific type of god is created by the thing that people like television is a quote-unquote god and it's it's a very like unique way of looking at them but I really love like did you was this something where you wanted to put into your story like oh the way that people follow because they're really there's followers in, in your book in the sense that like each of the kind of fey people have sort of followers that kind of make up their I don't yes, say entourage yes. yeah <laughs> Um, but was it important to you to kind of look at that, like the way people view gods and perhaps kind of turning it on its head? I was, I was, um, I was interested in the idea that gods are, are enormously powerful, but very permeable and mm. open to influence and why they are gods is because they, they have other sort of, you know, you could call their kind of a, a species of being, that is affected by how they're worshipped. Mm -hmm. um, and I got the idea from uh, the sort of germ of the idea from Heinrich Hein's um, book, The Gods in Exile. It's mm -hmm. you know, the German writer, so it was written in the middle of the, I think it's the 19th century, but it could have been the 18th century. Anyway, I read it when I was very young and it stuck in my head. And so, like I do, I think, well, if this was true of gods, how would that express itself? And so what I was interested in specifically in the story um, was that the, the green prayer being directed at Shift turns him from being kind of a, you know, a semi-demi, semi-detached semi god <laughs> and being sort of a real god mm -hmm. gradually. So, um, yeah, so in order for that to happen, I, I needed the reader to understand it. So I had to sort of, you know, using Odin as an example. And Odin was a good example because I'm quite keen on Odin and Odin's ravens, obviously. And it's been a bit vexing watching how that's been kind of co-opted by the, um, the white supremacists. It's like, oh, leave 
that alone. Put that down. <laughs> Come up with your own thing. Don't use the don't don't use this. We are we are all free Viking romance stuff. It's like <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I do okay. I wanna focus on shift for a second, which is a weird way of saying that. Um <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's hard. <laughs> yeah. He is such a, a shift is such a a unique character in the sense that what I really like about this character is his, the name shift really kind of defines as well, like the way that he can't really be seen directly and he can change shape, but it's also the way it, the name works kind of on two levels because we discover things about him slowly throughout the book and we learn more and more about him. Like, did, how did you go about creating the roles for shifts existence because they are very malleable and they are very um you can do so many things like did you ever worry about giving shift too much power or not enough like did you worry about the rules um, now that's that's always a question when you've got a character who's capable of a lot is mm-hmm. is um i i i his story is self-limits his power really Mm -hmm. the fact that he's been compelled to hide himself and he doesn't really have a choice that's kind of completely meshed into with his nature the fact that he's hidden that he's also compelled by the spell that hides him to keep himself hidden so um he's yeah he he doesn't he doesn't show his metal very often and it's not he's it's not repression with him but you do get a glimpse towards the end of the book of what he'd be like if he wasn't quite so trammeled and um you're supposed to be I mean I think you're supposed to be a little uneasy and think well you're dynamite you know (laughs) that's that's going to be difficult um but yeah that was just where I wanted to kind of you know leave it say well there's there's consequences even to wanting somebody to be free of something um i i have to ask because i think i saw you mention this briefly uh anyone who writes fantasy and is from new zealand is of course has it's a rule that i have to ask you a lord of the rings question of some sort yes um, yes yes, yes. Um, so like <laughs> big fan you, you have <laughs> you have a you have had an interaction with Peter Jackson, correct? Yeah, I've actually had several interactions with um, Peter Jackson. My um, P- Peter's wife, Fran, was was a bit of a childhood friend of my husband's. So, you know, when they when they meet each other, they go, oh, you remember when this or you remember when that? <laughs> yeah, but we don't, we, you know, you don't bump into him in the course of things. He's, you know, he's got a yeah. parallel existence and powerful land. <laughs> of course, yeah. But, um. So do do you ever get tired as a New Zealander? I feel like the the questions anyone must ask you outside of your own work is something about Lord of the Rings or something about Flight of the Concords. Like, is there any yep, other yep. like no those Concords too? Yeah, <laughs> I was just I was just gonna say like, do you ever you have to grow tired of people asking you about like Hobbiton and and different places like that, especially as yes, a but no, but see the thing is the relevant question now would be about Taika. Mm-hmm. That's because oh, that's yeah, because you see, Taika is a classic or with the with the mixed tone. You see, mm-hmm. I love mixed tone work. Like he can make you cry one minute and laugh like crazy the next. He's just mm-hmm. he's just he's just so good at it. So yeah, so I'm just waiting for the time when we automatically get asked about Taika. 
I, I mean, I, I have to imagine it's got to be pretty soon. I will say that like the Flight of the Concord show, I know at least in my my group of friends, like that was like that just kind of it's such a tone like their comedy is such a specific tone that it's just like it comes out of left field. And um, but you're absolutely right with Taika, like he he's so wide ranging. But I just um, what types of books did you enjoy kind of growing up and what types of books do you find yourself reading? Like, do you, especially when working on a book like the absolute book, which is so um, there's so much different types of fantasy and mythology in here. Do you find yourself reading those types of books while you're working on things? Or do you kind of steer clear of that, those types of genres while you're working? I I tend not to read fiction when I'm deep, deeply um, involved in a book, uh, you know, writing a novel. So, I mean, I go in waves with the writing. So I I kind of write in great bursts. So that leaves me time in between to read all the novels that start accumulating. But when I'm writing fiction, I don't tend to read fiction. But then I really, really like um, essays. And Mm -hmm. so that's pretty much what I'm what I read but I've, I'm a, I read widely I, I read a lot of literary fiction and 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 I read I love it I have I love young adult fantasy but it got very mainstream mm-hmm. which meant that it, it wasn't full of the absolute very best people struggling to put their heads up above the parapet anymore. <laughs> the kind of the, those people then, then J.K. Rowling became the wave that bore everyone else up. And now I'm kind of like sorting around looking for the for the you know the very literary stuff or the very very unusual or exciting stuff. So, but I always no, think I, the best the best fantasy is often in young adult books. Yeah, and and I do I know what you mean about kind of like the un, the unexpected. I'm I think one of the reasons that your book has stuck with me so much is I love I think one of the biggest challenges for a fantasy novel is when you are building a world which you have you build several worlds in this book um, when you're doing that as a reader part of the fun of the mystery is uncovering the rules of the world and what's going to happen and then I think a lot of times what can happen in young adult and adult fantasy is it can get a little like once the reveal happens and you know that the hero is going to be successful, you feel like you're just kind of like, okay, well, let's just get this over with. Whereas yours, it's like you really hold on into that really final page before the epilogue to kind of unveil or, you know, reveal what's going on. And, and I do think that is something where, I don't know, when writing fantasy, do you feel like you first have to establish a world and then, tell a story or you know how do you find that challenging I mean obviously you this is a, a, a I think it's sim- I think it's simultaneous I think mm-hmm. that the that the world that you're building um which has to feel like a material world with mm-hmm. rules that are scientific I mean even your magic has to feel scientific but also everything else in the world you know your your sort of social conditions though how money works how people feel about their neighbors all of that feeds in but it comes while you're writing and it comes where you go you you've you've invented one thing and then you go well if this was true what would that mean and then the next invention comes out of that and then mm-hmm. then so on it's just sort of feeds through I, ca- I call it um when I'm talking to I, te- I teach world building at 
a course at university. Mm -hmm. um, I call it consequential event, invention, that mm -hmm. you're, each invention is a consequence of something else that's already been invented. So, mm -hmm. so it's not quite that you're, it's not, it shouldn't feel like layering. It should feel like part of the narrative. It's, mm -hmm. it's the narrative that requires the inventions. Yeah. Is it, and so not to like mix metaphors and naming conventions, but is oh, it, mix okay. <laughs> it's almost like, um, to me, it feels a little bit like like Chekhov's gun, what they say about in the theater. Yes. You know, if you put a gun on the stage, it better go off before the end. Uh, to yep. me, uh, me it's Chekhov's forest, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I was just gonna say, like, for, <laughs> for your for this book, it's almost like do you think when you're writing fantasy, it's like, okay, if I create this rule, which I emphasize early on, it better play a part at the end, or else you're just kind of like it just leaves people flat. Like, are you thinking about how these magical rule sets and the physics of the world are going to affect the end. And I mean, granted, like you said, they end up going to purgatory, which we can kind of, you can flip all the rules on its head again. But are you thinking about that when you're building, having, writing a story kind of linearly like this? Now, I, now I'm in my head about saying linearly so many times. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how you say that. I, I don't know. I think I've run, I think I run out of times. But um, are you thinking about, how the rules of your worlds are going to affect the ending when you're starting or is that something you really don't concern you with yourself with in like kind of the first draft oh is no I mean I I I kind of it makes sense to me as I'm going on like what are the important things to know and uh there are several things that get it mentioned slightly offhand and dismissively because people are embarrassed about them mm -hmm. very very early on when when somebody's explaining what the she the the fairy people are able to do and someone mentions glamours and then kind of sweeps it under the carpet because they're you know it's it's a fairly disgraceful practice mm -hmm. and you don't see how incredibly powerful that is until you see it exercised at the end of the book and that was just a kind of like oh, i'm going to have some real fun here with the point of view you know? mm -hmm. <laughs> like so I do I do think you 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 can't just kind of make something up and not use it so mm -hmm. so I I do try to use everything but then I also try to purposely make it clear that sometimes you're you're opening a gate where the the reader can be able to imagine the the consequences of that particular thing that happened beyond the end of the story mm. so when when um shift makes the garden in purgatory at the end mm. um he says i think one day it might be a gate you know he says mm -hmm. that and then that just i mean i want what i want my readers to do is go away thinking yes but a gate to where because by that time they've sort of got a, quite a strong idea about fairy gates and what right. they do and so I like to be able to give people something to sort of spin out from the end of things mm -hmm. just just because then it will feel like it's theirs and you know they've been stimulated in some further invention yeah and it it also I mean it, it for, for me especially that I that the way that you have it end like that it keeps you thinking about the book and the story long after. I always think through movies, you know, what happens after the story ends. You know, I think there's like a, a book or a movie that's like after, like, you know, a lot of people like this, like after, happily ever after, but it is, it's like, it keeps you thinking about the things 
that are happening. Um, what was the most challenging aspect of writing this novel for you? Oh, you know, what was going to give it? Well, every novel I'm writing gets down to a point where you're writing the last quarter of it um, or third quarter, depends on the length of the novel, where <laughs> absolutely everything that has to happen has to work. Mm-hmm. So I got to the purgatory chapter and I thought, well, if I can't make this work, then the novel won't work. And then I got to the chapter after that, um, when Nev tells her story, I thought, well, if I can't make that work, it's not going to work. And then the chapter that's set in Tintern um, in England. Mm-hmm. And so it was just one thing after another. So it's usually the fact that you start a story and you've got lots of decisions to make. Mm-hmm. And then as the story goes on, there are fewer and fewer decisions that are available for you. And that's when it becomes like, I guess it's like um, chess with only a few pieces left on the board, mm-hmm. maybe. I, Yeah, I'm, as opposed to chess at the beginning, you know, <laughs> you make your opening gambit. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I guess, I guess that's, yeah, that, that was all a challenge. But having said that, I wanted the thriller chapter, the chapter that's on the on the estuary where mm-hmm. where all Taryn's chickens come home to roost, you know, mm-hmm. after the bad things she's done. Mm-hmm. I wanted that to sort of read a bit a bit like you know, um, suddenly Lee Child was in the driver's seat. Yeah. So I was going like, this chapter will be thriller. Uh-huh. Yeah. So. I, and I do. That's I. That's some. That's one of the many many fun things about this book is depending on like you could once you read the book once through you'll want to pick it back up and just open to a random chapter and depending on what chapter you open on you're reading a thriller or you're reading a fairy tale or you're reading a mystery and there's it's all packed into here and it's just I don't know I I haven't been able to stop thinking about this book because you weave in all of these different genres so much which is why I wanted to ask which is why I asked you about what you read and I definitely understand you saying you read all genres because they're all yeah, I sure do yeah no yeah, I I love genres and mm-hmm. I love love looking at them and thinking you know what could I do with this mm-hmm. you know I mean I can't like there's some genres I love right right like yeah that's not available to me yeah but um I think I think that was part of my idea about making like the book's message being that the world everything is big and interconnected mm-hmm. and, and and one way of doing that when you're writing fiction is to to um not make it one kind of book mm-hmm. say there are many kinds of things like mm-hmm. you know our shift calls everything people like he he, he says very early on mm-hmm. that you know the demons are people and that his chickens are people mm-hmm. um, you know everything's a person to him and so so it's that it's that kind of um even-handed inclusiveness you can you can make the book also do that by by you know going yay I'm now going to stick my feet in this genre mm-hmm. yeah and it, you know I, I I was doing it with gusto I wasn't I wasn't doing it going oh you know I'm going to show them or anything like that because I really <laughs> never think that usually I'm just just mm-hmm. trying to enjoy myself and get it right yeah oh I mean and I, and as a reader I always hate when someone tries to it's so like people try to put books into a genre like neat little cubby and so few books really do fit in one and it's so much more fun to just understand like you read a book because it's good not because it's a romance or a science fiction like yes you it happens to be one of those but 
it can be a bad example of those and you won't enjoy it, or it can be a great example of a different genre and you'll, you'll enjoy it all the same. And yeah, that, that's why I love this so much is because you do dabble into each of those genres. But um, so we, we always end our, our conversations with kind of one last question and that's what do you hope readers take away from reading the absolute book? I want them to feel transported. I want them to feel like they've gone away from themselves and their lives and they've been dwelling in a strange and wonderful country with endless possibility and they've got to walk great distances through beautiful landscapes and um, and I want them to sort of just feel love for, for the world we're in, uh, particularly the world of the forests and estuaries and so yeah. on Elizabeth, marshland I, very important save us from the sea when it starts coming for us <laughs> yeah. well i since like i said since i finished it i haven't been able to stop thinking about it it's one of those books where i i can't wait for my next read of it because it's just so magical and fantastic thank you thank you you're an ideal reader yay <laughs> it worked it worked on you yay it it <laughs> worked in spades it was it's so wonderful elizabeth thank you so much for joining me today yeah thank you for talking to me and yeah and your dog seems to have sunk completely out of well, sight of no, no 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 behind well, you he's yep. back there yeah now that we're done talking he'll be quiet the rest of the time yeah Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode from Overdrive.com, and our library friends can purchase these titles in Marketplace. Professional Book Nerds is proud to be an Evergreen Podcast signature program. To learn about other Evergreen podcasts, visit evergreenpodcasts.com. Our podcast is produced, recorded, and edited by Adam Sokol and Jill Grunewald and presented by Overdrive. For more information, visit professionalbooknerds.com. Coming up on 5-Minute News... I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not. It's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased, and essential world news daily.